0: Welcome, everybody, to another very, very special episode of Pod Strickland, this is episode 162, and I'm your host, Shwini Poo. I am joined today by a very special guest. Uh, He was actually our first guest ever on this podcast. Uh, He is Sports Illustrated senior writer and author of Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks, Chris Herring. Chris, how are you doing? I'm
1: doing really well. I um, I keep using the phrase. I've been a little bit emotionally overwhelmed this week, but but in the very very best way. Um, just really grateful for kind of the outpouring. Um, just so many people. Like I I said the other day, I was trying to retweet literally every single person that was posting a picture of the book and showing that it you know that they'd gotten it in the mail or that they'd gone to go pick it up, and it reached a point where I was like I I legitimately can't.
0: <laughs> retweet
1: everybody anymore because i look obnoxious like i would and i said this th- that same day like i was annoying myself with how much self-promotion I was doing and I was like you know what i'm like a- after probably a couple hundred i was like i can't do this anymore i look obnoxious so i'm, I'm just so grateful you know i never really imagined this many people would support me and kind of just even why they would want to um I know for a lot of people it's you know it's the mix it's not me but um just really really grateful and I appreciate you asking me on
0: yeah i mean i'm i i appreciate having having you on uh I know you've been doing the uh the rounds here of uh of Nick's podcast uh you know all the nick's podcasts which apparently there's endless amounts of them out there um but uh yes it's i mean i think the the crazy thing about this book and just you know um i we've had other guys on before uh who wrote about the nineties nicks um And it's just like that team for whatever reason resonates so much with this fan base. And I don't think it's just because it's like the last sustained success this team has had, or this organization has had rather. Um, I feel like that team connected with the fan base and the city in a way that, you know, like it's kind of interesting. Um, the Yankees were a dynasty at the end of the nineties. Um, And obviously, the Giants have won two Super Bowls since then. And, you know, there have been other successful New York teams during that time and after that time. Um, But I don't think any of them have had the uh, long term kind of grip of the city and the fan base in the same way that that team did. Is that something that you felt as you were researching the book, writing the book and, you know, just talking this week now with Knicks fans and everything?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's something to be said for the fact that, um, they, they weren't competing really. I mean, even the Yankees, when they were successful as they were, and that, like you said, it was a dynasty, there was still another team in the city playing the same sport. Um, the Knicks didn't have that. I mean, obviously the Nets were not far away. They might as well have been in the city, but people also, you know, distinguished between New Jersey and New York. And so, um, uh, I mean, it was just, it was a Knicks town. And I, I think even if you just kind of think about New York, I, I think a lot of people will tell you it's a basketball town, relatively speaking anyway. You've got 85 million, you know, street courts, uh, some of which are, you know, the most famous ones in the country. I think most of the most famous ones in the country are all kind of in New York. So I, I think there's something to be said for that as well. Um, but, you know, it wasn't just that. I, I think also just the personalities. Um you know, quite frankly, and, and it's not a knock at all, I'm not, you know, I don't think we have to compare and contrast necessarily, but, like, the Yankees, Jeter, and, and, and those guys, uh, I you know, I don't think anyone ever was in love with Derek Jeter because of his personality, necessarily, <laughs> uh, or because of him as a character, like, I think the most fun we were able to have with Derek Jeter as a character, really, was, like, hearing about the, um, yeah, Jeets. the gift baskets and stuff like that, yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. You know, so it was kind of more of a mythical thing than it was anything that people could actually enjoy or see on a camera or anything like that. The Knicks weren't like that. And, and I mean, maybe there's a comparison to be made there between uh, Jeter and maybe not really having the most outward, colorful, character-filled like personality. Ewing was like that, too. I mean, Ewing was even probably tougher to deal with in the media than, than Jeter really was. Um where, you know, Jeter would give you answers, but it was just kind of cut and dry. And it's like, okay, it's over now. And, you know, you don't really yuck it up with him all that much. Uh, Ewing certainly was like that too, except he was more gruff than, than Jeter was. But the rest of the Knicks, aside from that, I mean, Oakley, Oakley was Oakley, man. I mean, I, you know, I've got stories in the book about him left and right. Um, and just how colorful he was, literally, you know, down to the way he dressed. And wearing different color suits all the time. Like, you know, he was basically a starburst. Package in terms of all the, the colors that he would represent. <laughs> um, and, and and then the stuff he would say. And then what he would go out on the court and do. As far as just knocking the crap out of people. Having more flagrant fouls than 15 teams by himself. Uh, Oakley was a character. Starks, you know, had the Kurt Warner story in terms of having played at four different colleges. Having played basically one year of high school basketball. Having bagged groceries at a Safeway in the years before he became a Nick. Um And a guy that couldn't control his temper or his emotions really well on the court. So he was full of color and wore his heart on his sleeve. Oakley was diving into the stands. And then you had Anthony Mason, um, who was like a mix of all those things. Didn't have a whole lot of playing experience, you know, in high school. He played two years of high school. Um, He was a guy that liked baseball more than basketball. He was a guy that grew up in New York. He was a guy that, you know, could never say no or just walk away from something when somebody made fun of him. He had to punch you. Um, he was a guy that clotheslined his own son on graduation day um, while playing a game of one-on-one to avoid his son having a chance to beat him. His own junior high-age son. Um, while Anthony Mason was a grown-ass, oversized man. So, I mean, and, and a guy that, you know, was not going to take anything from anybody either. Was going to fight if it came down to it. Or even if it didn't come down to it, he was going to fight. So, I mean, these were the guy, and, and not to mention, he wore his heart on his sleeve, too. And so, those three guys were beloved in New York. Ewing, I think, probably was too, but it wasn't shown in the same way because he didn't show his emotions in the way those three guys did. But you had
0: right? It's always different because he's like, it's like, he's the number one pick. So, he's the number one pick, he's the franchise player. It's different when you're like, that guy versus the love that a Starks or a Mason or an Oakley will have. Guys that are like, you know, they didn't have it, they weren't supposed to be As good as they were, right? Like they're, so it's like that love you get for that is always different from the love that Ewing will get where it's more like a, it's almost like a business relationship where you're like, yeah, I love you as long as you're making me money. Um, And that's great. But when you don't, or when we come up short, then we have issues and like that, that's always there. But yeah, no, I totally agree. Like um, those three guys for sure. I mean, Mason, I, I was a kid growing up watching those teams and like, you know, Mason and Starks and Oakley, like, those were, you know, they were, like, gods for me. Um, you know, I, I remember when they traded Starks. I remember where I, like, I, lo- I woke up, because, you know, back then, Twitter was not a thing. Um, I woke up, and, like, I opened the newspaper, an actual physical newspaper, and I went to the sports section, as always did, and I was like, wait, what does this mean? Like, wait, 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 Starks is gone? Like, that that's not supposed to happen. What's, like... Um, and then, you know, you trade Oakley, like th- those things are so crazy, but yeah, I mean, I mean, Oakley, Oakley is such an interesting one too now, because he's such a polarizing figure with the fan base, given kind of like his recent commentary on many things. Uh, let's we'll just leave it there. But like, um, you know, in that moment, and I think reflecting on those teams, any Knicks fan that, that watched them would, you know, you love what he represented and how he played. Um, and it wasn't always pretty most of the time it wasn't pretty right that, that's it was pretty ugly most of the time but they found a way and they were very much a team that i think was greater than the sum of its parts um in a lot of ways and i think i
1: think you just hit the nail on the head buddy uh, when we when we really dissect why they resonated the way they did and why they still do they were a group of underdogs outside of patrick ewing and uh When you have a dynasty, it's kind of hard to paint yourself that way, (laughs) you know, the Yankees. Um, So, I mean, the Knicks weren't really supposed to win. And then when they got to a place where they could have, they ended up losing and they ended up kind of blowing a series that they could have won. So, you know, to some extent, I think that's painful. But I do think that um, when you're in love with the team, you love them regardless of whether they win or they lose. It in some ways makes them more lovable because they're more human and their flaws show through, like Starks in Game 7. Um, you know, I don't know whether fans are willing to put Charles Smith on that list about being lovable when you know when stuff mm. goes wrong. Um, I think Char- but, Charles
0: Smith always gets a he. It's a that's a tough one for Knicks fans. I think I don't think he had <laughs>
1: enough. I don't think he had enough highs during that yeah. time. You know, Starks. Like it's crazy to think that Starks. In my mind, Starks' situation was the bigger mess up in Game Seven. Um, but but he had so many highs to more than balance out the low. Um, you know, whereas Charles Smith didn't really get to experience those mountaintop moments, uh, you know, the way that Starks did and the longevity of Starks' career with the Knicks and everything like that. And, and also, again, the emotion that he played with. That, you know, it was a city that I think really appreciated that and uh, really th- th- that sort of emotion. Uh, it was like a hard hat wearing bunch, and I feel like for those guys in particular, Oakley, Mason, and Starks, there's a universe in which none of those three really make the NBA or never really, you know, uh, no. Oakley wasn't an abundantly – athletic guy at all um couldn't jump over a phone book and you know mason took years for him to make it to the nba he played in you know as many countries as all he had over, teams yeah. um you know at, at one point uh, starks again you know very easily could have never made it to the nba they were all all-stars exactly one time um and that was the group that new york was rolling with you know they had riley who i think any team would have loved to have and they had ewing which any team would have loved to have had but aside from that, it was just kind of a group of dudes. Like they had some skill, you know, they were skilled defensively, I think, and maybe don't get enough credit for that. Um, but offensively, man, they weren't, they weren't running up the score on you most of the time. And, uh, it was a team that I think because they were underdogs, I think that was part of why people fell in love with them because they had to scrap to have a chance to really win the whole thing. And, uh, and they almost, damn, they almost got there, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, um, you know, like, the the Starks is always interesting because, uh, you know, like you, I mean, the game seven he had was terrible, but it's like that's like it's one of those things where, you know, you that's you can you have to live with that because if you don't live with that, you probably never get there. Um, and it's also, I mean, I think Riley's, I I don't, I mean, I I don't remember this if you mentioned this in the book or I I feel like Riley has said previously like he feels like he messed that up by just like leaving john in there and just letting him chuck up shots constantly um in that game but um you know like you know even if you even if you look at that series they, they don't get to game seven without john in that series um you know like i love ewing ewing's you know i think at the worst he's what like the second best nick ever probably the best nick ever however you feel about him um but like i mean he had a terrible series he got completely outplayed by Hakeem, which is okay, by the way. Uh, Hakeem Olajuwon, very good player. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, in that moment, I think obviously there was always going to be a lot of anger with Starks, but, you know, you kind of get away from that and over the years and you remember like all the good stuff. And um, yeah, like I, I agree with going back to Chris Smith. That, that's an interesting one because when they traded for him, if I remember correctly, he had played mostly power forward with the Clippers before that. Um, yep. But then he comes to the Knicks and they're playing him at three. And it's just like, you know, it, it it's not all his fault that he didn't exactly hit the highs in New York that he had previously, because it was a totally different thing that you're asking him to do. Um, and obviously back then you could get away with like, you know, playing these jumbo lineups with zero spacing together but um even even then I think that was pretty hard for him to negotiate was that something that like I mean going through the the book doing the research and and kind of seeing how that unfolded do you have more sympathy for him than probably the average Knicks fan does
1: you're talking about Charles right yeah Yeah. no there's no there's no question I mean um I'll put it this way I, I went in thinking that Charles you know we obviously are gonna have to address the The game five sequence, you know, is is one of the more important ones in in recent franchise history, if not one of the biggest in just franchise history all the way back to 46. Um, I didn't necessarily know I would do a whole chapter on Charles, but the more I was learning and the more I started writing, I was like, you have to, because, um, you know, I think a lot of people are going to ask the what if question with Xavier McDaniel. Um, I think that, you know, it's such a rock bottom moment really for Charles that I think that you have to mention it there and mention it at length. And I think it helps to know who he is and what he was before he got there. Because like you said, he was kind of a reduced version of what he'd been. And I don't think that was all his fault. I think that, you know, um, he got to the Knicks. He was a 20 point per game scorer with the Clippers before that. He really, when he signed on, was really signing on to be their second scorer. Um, You know, maybe third scorer, I guess, I guess third scorer behind Starks. Um, but the thing was, he was being played out of position. He was closer to seven feet tall. They're playing him in small forward. And when he got there for camp the first day, which I go in detail about that first day of camp for him with Pat Riley, because Pat Riley had kind of already written him off as of the first day because the camp did not go well. Charles was out of shape. Charles, you know, there was the toughness factor, which Riley wanted out of everybody, but Charles was not really abundant in that area. Um, But Charles was really maybe the most finesse player they had, and in some ways one of the most skilled offensive players they had. You absolutely have to find a way to make a guy like that work on a team that doesn't have that much offense. And so you know, the idea, if if there was one criticism in the book, not that I'm pointing it out, but I think that I make a point to to at least lay out the details of, of the circumstances, Riley did not seem to try all that hard to really make Charles Smith fit. Or if he did, he made him try to fit like in around
0: how he wanted him hole
1: to when he you know when Charles is more of a square peg or vice versa. Like, you know, the idea that he had to play small forward and try to drop weight so that he could guard Scottie Pippen when he was like seven feet tall is kind of insane to think about. Um, <laughs> the idea that you had Anthony Mason on the bench and that you could have started Mace and then brought Charles Smith off the bench and let Mace play small forward and maybe allow Charles to play more of a natural position off the bench might have been perfect for him. Um, and maybe let the offense run through him instead of making him a third or fourth option sometimes. So, you know, there was that, but yeah, I mean, from that, obviously the, the moment in game five and the detail in there that, you know, and in fairness, Doc Rivers mentioned it in a book he wrote after that season, Charles Smith gets pulled over after game five, uh, on the way home, which just seems like a brutal end to that day. And probably one of the worst days of his life, certainly as a basketball player. Um, and then, further into it, that Riley, you know, Charles had chronic knee problems, and they didn't know that at the time, but Charles has surgery, you know, knee clean out, and then that's in the offseason. Then early into the season, he has another procedure to clean out even more stuff somehow of his knees, and then later in the season, his knees are still bothering him, and at a certain point, Riley seems to kind of get tired of the, my knees are hurting excuse, and so finally, one game when Charles is coming to the locker room in a suit, um, Pat says to him, while he's talking to the rest of the team and writing on the blackboard for pregame, Charles is walking through the room, and Riley stops him, and he says, Charles, if I needed you to give me one minute tonight, and the result of that one minute, you playing that one minute would be a championship, could you give me that one minute? And Charles kind of looks around, and he's like, yeah, coach, of course I could. And then Pat says, well, then why are you wearing that suit? And he says this in front of the whole team. And it's, you know, I don't even know what word to use for that. It's kind of emasculating. It's, you know, it's basically calling him a wuss and saying, well, then like suit your ass up. Then why, why, why wouldn't you be suiting up if you could give me one minute to win a title? Like, okay, Pat, you're not playing for a title tonight. Um, (laughs) That's why, you know, it's a regular season game against like whoever Vancouver or whoever like it's not, it wasn't do or die, but Riley coached every moment like that. And Charles wasn't healthy. I mean, he would develop and had probably at the time chronic knee problems. But by doing that, and it seems like you could write it off as an isolated moment. But in doing that, you then give the rest of the team license and make it open season on Charles Smith in terms of questioning his toughness. Which, <laughs> granted, he wasn't Xavier McDaniel as far as just going in and trying to. I mean, Xavier explained to me that he was trying to knock Scotty Pippen in the head every oh, yeah. opportunity he oh, got. Yeah. OK, so Charles isn't that guy that doesn't mean that he's not trying his very best to go out there and play when he's banged up. Like, if he's really hurt, of course he can't play. So, you know, the psychological part of it was where I started to really feel bad for Charles and where some of his teammates, and even some of his future teammates, you know, with the Spurs, uh, Will Perdue who played for the Bulls, would later be teammates with him in San Antonio. And he was like, yeah, I, you know, I got a chance to play and work with Charles in San Antonio. And by the time he got there, man, like, he was a different player. And you could just tell that so much of that Riley kind of ruined him. And so I absolutely felt something for him. Hell, I felt something for him when I tried to interview him. He didn't end up speaking to me for the book. People told me he probably wasn't going to talk. But I just remember the day I called him, him picking up the phone. And I had, you know, some of his friends had told me in advance, you know, he still gets razzed about, you know, the the Game 5 thing, uh, where people on the street make a point to say stuff to him. And I I don't know why I assumed, I guess maybe because he's from Connecticut originally, I, I thought he lived somewhere else. But the day I spoke to him, just briefly, because he declined the interview, um, I could hear the subway doors closing behind him. And it's like this man still lives in New York City. And so if a lot of people go out of their way, he's clearly recognizable. He still looks the same as all those years. Still a tall-ass man. Like, it's very clear it's him. So if people go out of their way to raz him and he's, like, on the subway, like, how do you escape that at a certain point? And I, I just don't know that he's ever been able to. It feels like the situation's trailed him, even though it's, you know, it's just one low point in a career, but it really seemed like it came to define him certainly as it relates to the Knicks.
0: Yeah. Uh and everything I've ever heard about him is he's like the nicest guy. Um, I've heard that he's yep. just a total gentleman. So I mean, it sucks. Like that it's and it, you know, like it sucks because it's totally understandable why fans will never forget that moment. Like it's it's kind of a thing where that's just what it is. And it sucks for him. Um, but like, I mean, to your point with Charles Smith, I mean, he, he played two more years with the Knicks after that, two more full years of the Knicks after that. Uh, he played like half the games the year after the, the, the game five sequence. Then he plays, you know, 76 games, 73, but then he gets traded in 95, 96. I mean, he's basically, he's out of the league a year and a half after that, you know, he he's done after 96, 97. So yeah, those Riley years definitely took a lot out of him. Um, But uh, you did mention Xavier McDaniel. uh, And it's it's funny because he he literally only played one year with the Knicks. Um, But like it is a year that I'm even I'm too young to really remember that. Um, But people that remember that, like if you talk to people that love that team, he is, you know, he is like a demigod. Um, And, you know, they're they're Knicks fans that will go to their grave saying like, if we had brought him back, we won the championship the, the next year. I'm not sure I agree with that.
1: Um, no, I'm not sure I do either. Yeah.
0: Like, I mean, he he was also, he's another guy, like, I mean, he, he basically was on the kind of downward slope of his career. Um, yep. not And, I mean, look, like, the, the Bulls were the Bulls. Let, 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 let's be clear about something. They won six championships, three in a row, twice for a reason. I don't think it's as, as simple as if Xavier McDaniel comes back, they win. I think there are actually other personnel moves they've made previous to that uh, that probably cost them a better chance of winning the title uh, in terms of, like, trading Rod Strickland from O'Cheeks and, um, you know, the Mark Jackson trade, which is pretty controversial. Also, like, there are other moves, but, yeah, I mean, look, Xavier McDaniel is a guy that guys, I mean, people from back then love. Is it, I mean, do you talk to him, like, His energy, I mean, he was on Knicks fan TV, uh, probably like right when the pandemic hit. They got they had a bunch of ex players come, yeah, and like his energy is still like it's still palpable. Does that really come across when you talk to him? Also,
1: it does, but you know what, I would tell you, um, I think there might have been some miscommunication with uh, with the way that all played out. I mean, first of all, let's be honest here he he did decide to leave. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't that the Knicks didn't want him back. It was that he decided to leave. Um, you know, the question that I get from a lot of people is like, well, David Falk was his agent. Um, did Was there like a, a, a backroom deal that, you know, Michael had with David Falk to steer Xavier McDaniel out of New York because, you know, X played a fantastic series against the Bulls. He made life really difficult on Scottie Pippen. As I said, he was trying to hurt Scottie Pippen, essentially, and he admits that. Um, I mean, the real story here is, is this, there's a couple things. One, um, this was at the beginning. I mean, Larry Bird was still literally in the league when this happened, but this is the very beginning of the bird rights. Um, and I think that this context is important. The Knicks had Xavier McDaniels bird rights from the trade where they got him from Phoenix. They were going to bring him back on those bird rights. They made that clear to him. Well, I say they made that clear to him. They told him that at the beginning of the process. We know now how bird rights work. The idea that when you're signing someone with their bird rights, they have to be your last signing of the summer. You can't sign them first. So, Xavier McDaniel's frustration, from what he told me, is that he was waiting and waiting and waiting for the Knicks to bring him back and to sign him. The reason they were waiting is because they were trying to add other stuff to the roster. In the meantime, they they had made it clear. I keep saying that I'm trying not to take their company. They had told him they were bringing him back. I I trust they were doing that because he was a pretty good player. Um, So they were going to do that, but they were trying to reinforce the roster aside from him and find a way to go over the cap to do it. And so he was going to be the thing that put them over the cap. So they were trying to complete a trade to send Mark Jackson to the Clippers um, and to bring Charles Smith over to get them another scoring forward. And also to bring Doc Rivers over, so they eventually did do that. But there was a guy named Stanley. Why am I blanking on his name? Uh, the big guy from the Clippers, Roberts? who or former Stanley Roberts. I'm sorry, he was with Orlando. He was Shaq's backup, and um, they were trying to complete a three team trade to send um, to send Mark Jackson to the Clippers and to bring over Doc and Charles Smith. <laughs> but Stanley Roberts from Orlando held the trade up. He had a note crazy the dude was coming out this first year he had a no trade clause so um and because he was comfortable backing up Shaq he played with Shaq in college it was comfortable also Orlando didn't notify him in advance that they're going to do it so he got frustrated he decides to just kind of stage a sit-in basically and stop the trade from happening so that goes on for a week two weeks three weeks and then by the third week X is like I'm tired of this I thought I was a priority I should be a priority I deserve better than this and he gets an offer from Boston, who's just seeing him wait. And it was for decent enough money. I don't know if it was substantially more than what he would, would have gotten from the Knicks. But his fear was that, okay, the market's drying up because of how long this is taking. The Knicks are going to leave me without a home or without another option. And they're kind of, you know, handcuffing me. So he gets the offer. He then uh, asked Patrick, who also is represented by David Falk. Patrick, man, what would you do in my situation? Like, I want to stay here in New York, but I'm getting the impression that it may not be mutual or they may not really care what's happening to me with the situation. And Patrick, maybe, again, not understanding the bird rights rules, said, man, if if, if they if you really meant what they say you meant to them, they would have already signed you already, brother. I, I would just leave if I was you. And that's the way it happened. And so Xavier McDaniel takes the deal from Boston. To my knowledge, he does it without even saying anything to the Knicks. And that was how they lost him. So people are upset about that. I mean, and, and also also important to add, Xavier McDaniel did not have a good regular season. He had a pretty uneven regular season. Um, he got into it with Pat Riley at times about the strenuous nature of the practices. He would have one game where he'd have 37 points. He'd have never, the next game where he'd have two. Uh, you know, he would pump fake all the time, even when people weren't really defending him. He was, you know, they needed him to be really, they were expecting him to be their second scorer, not Stark's. Uh, but he really didn't live up to that. But he yeah, had—I mean, killer he, this is a guy playoff. who had
0: averaged—he had averaged twenty four times in his career before that. So
1: right, yeah. and he and he wasn't old yet. I mean, like he was in his late twenties, if I remember, like maybe twenty nine yep. or thirty when he came to the Knicks. Twenty eight. I mean, so he was like a relatively young dude. But he, you know, what happened? He had the the kind of uneven regular season, and then on top of that, the the training staff and the Knicks doctors. Had essentially kind of done physicals on him, and they were like, you know, we don't really like the profile that we're seeing from his knees. Like, we don't really think he's going to hold up yep. much longer. Which was true because he didn't play very much longer in the NBA, uh, even after he went to Boston. I don't even know that he played out the Boston contract. He all played.
0: Time. He played three years in Boston after that. Uh, he only start. This is the other thing. He barely started in Boston. Uh, he played, and he was
1: Larry Bird's replacement essentially. Yeah. So I mean, like that tells you a lot. So he did play out the contract then, but he yeah. wasn't he wasn't overwhelmingly effective. He might have had one more decent year if I'm remembering correctly. But yeah. the Knicks were not sold on bringing him back. But then he had the ridiculous playoff run where he was outplaying Scottie Pippen, um, and even more important than outplaying him, he was intimidating him and intimidating the other guys from the Bulls. And so they overrode what the doctors told them about not offering a one-year deal. They were ready to do that to bring him back. I think that they wanted to bring him back certainly, but I do think that, um, between maybe not the clearest understanding, or maybe the Knicks were not clear and explaining the way the bird rights worked, uh, to Xavier and kind of why he had to be last and why his deal was going to take a while to play out. Maybe they didn't, you know, tell him exactly what the terms would be once they were done. I don't know. But, um, he, he decided to leave Patrick, you know, maybe not knowingly, but he kind of pushed him out the door as well a little bit, gave him a nudge and that was how they lost him. And so, yeah, there is that juxtaposition that happens between Charles Smith and Xavier McDaniel, but I'm not, I'm not completely convinced it would have made a difference ultimately. Um, I think just it's just not, a, you know, it's like, a, yeah,
0: it, it always seems to me more like a, a thing because the Knicks didn't win people point to it, but I don't, I don't really think it's the reason they didn't win. Um, you know, Michael Jordan probably is a big reason they didn't win. Yep. Um, <laughs> I yeah, agree. You know, like, like that's just part of it. Like, you know, uh, and then ninety-three ninety four, you know, is Xavier McDaniel the difference at that point in his career? Probably not. I mean, this guy, ninety-three ninety four, uh, you know, he averages less points. He averages eleven points a game. He's coming off the bench basically for Boston at this point. He played, he only started five games that year of a full eighty two. Um, you know, he and he's out of the league two years after that and goes to Greece comes back and is pretty much done. Like he's not even really a player at that point. So um, yeah, I think that, I think the Xavier McDaniel thing gets uh, probably talked about a little bit more than it should Uh, on a positive note. uh, You know, like the Knicks did happen to win some games during that time. Uh, You know what? I I guess like this is a question we got from a lot of people. Um, So I guess it's like a two part question, but First part of the question is, doing your research on this book, which team do you think was the best team of that era? And then the second uh, question, which was uh, even more specific, is do the 97 Knicks beat the Bulls if not for the suspension? So to
1: me, I mean, 94 is, I don't think it's even debatable. That's the closest they ever got to winning the title. Um, you know, they, they were a Stark's shot away from winning game six and maybe a Hakeem Olajuwon fingernail from winning game six, which would have given them the title. And then they had an opportunity in game seven, they only lose by six points in a game where John Stark shoots two for eighteen. So that's the closest they got. Um I, I think that's fair to say that the ninety-three team might have been better and you know, might have had harder competition to get there because they almost went through Jordan that time. They had a two-o lead. Uh they were very close to winning the game five. Um, but I, I still think, so that was their best team, I think all around, but I think that 94, like you can't really, I, I have some people saying, you know, 93, they would have won the whole thing if Charles Smith doesn't, you know, that doesn't happen to Charles that, Smith.
0: That Suns team is really good. That the the Suns team really good. The Suns team won
1: more games than they, I mean, the Knicks won 60 games that year and the Suns still won more than they did. So there's that. There's the fact that, you know, if you beat Michael Jordan in that game, you're up three to two, but you still got to beat Michael one out of those two times, which isn't a given. And you're going to Chicago for game six. So you would have had to go through the Bulls one more time, either at home or on the road. And you got to beat that Suns team, which was really good. And it doesn't mean they couldn't have. It just means that they were really good and it it wasn't a given.
0: And and ninety-seven. just some context on that Suns team. They actually, I mean, that's that 93 finals is insane. Um, if you're ever bored out of your mind, I'd definitely recommend people go watch some of those games from that finals. Um, but like the Suns dropped the first two games at home and they still took that series six cause they won two out of three at the United center. So like, yeah, I mean, that team was really, really good. I mean, Kevin Johnson was cooking at that time. It was, that was a very, that would have been a very, very tough series. Not a given for sure. No,
1: absolutely. And I, I I don't know that enough people fully appreciate that, but you're you're absolutely right, and I agree with you. So there's that. And then 97, you know, to some extent, I think there's truth there, too, that, um, okay, you're going to be playing. Was that, I'm trying to remember, was that the, that was the 72-win Bulls? No, yeah. no, no, the 72-win Bulls, were they the year before? It was, it set, right? it was the
0: 69-win Bulls team that they, they beat, I think, in the final game of the regular season to stop them from going back-to-back 70 wins.
1: You're right. You're right. And so yeah. the, and the they Knicks split the were, season
0: series with them. Uh, yeah. 10 year old me, me they, still remembers this.
1: <laughs> they split the, the season series and the two games they lost of the four that they played. They only lost those two games by three points combined to the bulls. So they were, I mean, literally neck and neck, toe to toe with those teams in a head to head context. But I, you know, again, it, it's good to be even, but then it's like, I, Michael was Michael, man. And I, I, I'm not completely convinced they win. If you want to say that it was maybe the best shot they had since 93, or maybe even it was an equal shot to what they would have had in 93. I, I can believe that. It doesn't mean they weren't going to win the series. I just, I'm not convinced that they do. Um, I, it would have been a, a toss-up, but the toss-up, you know, Jordan is always kind of the, the guy that leans on the skill a little bit. So, yeah, it would have been possible. But then again, you have to go through the Bulls, and then you've got to win the finals round again. So I'm not completely convinced that, that or 93 are their best chance. Their best chance was obvious because they were literally potentially one play away from winning a 94. But if I had to pick one team that was the best, I'd say 93. And I think that the 97 team honestly might have been better than what the team had in 94 as well, because they finally had a little bit better offensive balance with a team that was mostly thriving with its defense. He had Larry Johnson. You had Alan Houston. You had Chris Childs backing up. Um, Ward. You know, you had Chris Childs at that point backing up Charlie, or no, Charlie Ward backing up Chris Childs. So you had, you had some offense to go with a really, really dominant defense. And so it didn't quite work out. You know, obviously the suspensions were just brutal and killed them. You know, I know Knicks fans certainly have their opinion on whether that was fair or not. I don't know any Knicks fan <laughs> that thinks that it was, uh, you know, the, the the rules were the rules in that case. And, you know, that it even went to court. And I, you know, I think it's fascinating to me that like the person that was arguing on the Knicks behalf from the players union was a Knicks fan and the judge in the case was a Knicks fan and still lost the the hearing, lost the case just because it was really cut and dry. Like David Stern had the rules written in where you cannot leave the bench. And granted, Patrick did not leave the bench looking to rough anybody up. He didn't even leave the bench looking to, like, pull people apart. He just kind of left the bench. And um you know, but the rules stated that if you left the bench, you were going to be suspended. So it it was a heavy handed suspension, but the league was with technically within its rights to do it, and that's why the Knicks didn't win the case. But uh that was a pretty brutal ending to that season. You know, a really sour sour one. And you know, Jeff Van Gundy has basically said like I'm I'm still not really over that one."
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm not over that one, Uh and it, it's it's the thing is too is like everybody remembers those Knicks heat series and they all went seven games or five games or, but they were kicking the shit out of that heat team. Like they were just crushing them. Um, they're up three, one, I think at the time of that. And you know, um, yes, they had lost that game five. They were, they're about to lose that game five in, in Miami when it goes down, but you get game six at home. I mean, they're probably going to win that game. It's just, it's, it's, it's worse to not know you know that's that's i think the the real thing that sucks it's like at least in 93 you knew you had an answer there was no there's no like ambiguity right it's not like oh well if no you lost so there's no there's a finality to it and i think 97 the tough thing is and also the the thing that people forget too is like that's probably larry johnson's last like really healthy season or most healthy yeah. season in new york so like That was their best shot Um, because as fun as 99 was, I mean, they were not going to win. Like even at full health, they're unlikely to beat the Spurs. But obviously, by the time they got to the finals, there was just no chance they were going to beat the Spurs. Um, And 98, you know, that was obviously the impetus for them to make big changes on the roster. So um, 97 was kind of like the last hurrah of a certain core of that team. Um, And I think not just not having that opportunity is such a, it's such a gut punch. Um, And I think it's really hard to get over. And I, I mean, I'm sure you talk to guys from that team and, you know, you said Van Gundy, like uh, I imagine that a lot of the guys from that team feel, feel the same way that he does uh, where it's like, you just don't know if you can really ever get over it.
1: Yeah. I don't, I don't know that all those guys have, you know, um, Alan Houston was, Weeping into a towel in the locker room. Um, the way it was described to me is that Jeff Van Gundy, as the players were going out back to the bus, um, that Jeff wasn't on the bus, you know, in that front seat initially, that as guys were coming out, Jeff was like lurched back behind the bus. And John Wallace, that was on that team, he told me that he couldn't figure out what Jeff was doing. So he kind of went around the side just to kind of be- get a better view of what Jeff was doing. Jeff was hunched over because he was taking pebbles on the ground. And like aligning them on the ground, almost in an X's and O's sort of format, to basically diagram plays, because he still hadn't let go of the fact that they had just lost that game and lost that series uh, that they had control over. So that was that was a pretty rough one. Um, you know, it, it and it was you know to me when I was writing the book, I wanted to make sure that in the first few chapters that I kind of foreshadowed the fact that that was going to happen because they'd had so many fights in the years leading up to that. And it was so clear that the league was cracking down on the fact that, like, we're not going to stand by and just let these teams brawl anymore. And, um, you know, whether it was leaving the bench, whether it's swinging on guys. uh, So I had maybe two or three instances before the actual 97 fight comes up where I would kind of draw that allusion to the fact that this is coming, you know. And um, in particular, Bob Salmi, who uh, was an assistant coach, but also the team's video coordinator, he put together uh, a video at one point for the Knicks and kind of spliced these things together with Billy Joel's uh, angry young man playing in the background. (laughs) And um, I I can't remember the exact lyrics, but uh, I think it's like he can't understand why he makes the mistakes and he can't understand why his heart always breaks and he'll go to the grave as an uh, angry old man. And the idea that, like, behind him using that song was that the Knicks were so good during that era, and had been so good defensively. They're the best defense in the league three years in a row under Riley. Which I don't know how many teams you've had that that's been the case with over history. But basically, he was saying like we're beginning to be known more for all the extracurricular stuff than we are like how good we are. Uh, so like, let's not give people a reason to really say that about us. Like, let's control our emotions. And, or else, like, we run the risk of maybe leaving this era without having won anything. And that was kind of that moment coming, you know, the chickens coming home to roost. That uh, You know, and in fairness, like, the, the Heat said, I talked to plenty of Heat players that said, man, if that had happened on iron to the floor, we run off our bench, too. You know, like, it would have happened the same way it just so happened to take place over there. And I do have in the book, too, that, you know, some people have suggested maybe Pat Riley said something on his end of the bench to kind of prompt that to happen. And while he didn't say anything during the game and and shoot around that morning, he did kind of keep using the words fight and scrap and fight and scrap with his players just to kind of charge them up because they were down 3-1. And I think he realized, like, this is our season if we don't do something. And so he kept saying that. And he was kind of a master of messaging. Uh, I have plenty of examples of that with the Knicks that he does that with, uh, where he just wanted them to kind of go out and carry out something. And uh, he kept saying fight and scrap, and um, Ike Austin, who at one point had been the sixth man of the year for Miami, he remembered being next to P.J. Brown during all of that, when Pat had said that, then Pat walks away, and he said, you know, I remember P.J., who was a really calm, kind of docile dude, just at a certain point saying, like, man, if anybody even touches me tonight, I'm going off. And obviously, you know, Charlie Ward came in and boxed P.J. out, um, and kind of went pretty low. You know, I don't think he was trying to hurt him at all, but, you know, Charlie Ward is a small guy, and he's it wasn't, also, it wasn't you know,
0: necessarily a, It wasn't a necessary box out either, let's put it that way.
1: I mean, the game was, they were <laughs> down by like 13 or 15 points or something like that with a minute and a half left in the game. The game was over, but you watch, I mean, I've watched all this stuff so many times. You know, you watch Charlie do that. Charlie's rationale is that I'm a small guy. You know, I've always been taught my whole life that you have to go low to box out, which, okay, um, you know, the score is the game's over. And on the sideline, you've got Doc Rivers, a former Nick, as one of the announcers. He's the color analyst on the game. And he says, you know, the Knicks are going to feel disappointed that they didn't come out and close the series out tonight. Um, but now, you know, now the series goes to a sixth game and the Knicks are going to have to fight. And he uses the word fight. And as soon as he says that, Tim Hardaway's pre-throw goes up and Charlie Ward goes into the legs. Uh, pj brown and then it's a fight so it was pretty crazy the way it all happened and it uh you know it was just a a pretty heartbreaking moment for the knicks but uh there was so much that led up to that and you can kind of see it coming on some level uh
0: so to rewind a little bit because you just mentioned doc um but doc was a really good player for the knicks but he gets hurt really early in that 93 94 season and the knicks end up swinging a trade for Derek harper who you know, if the Knicks end up winning that series in '94, that final series, he might have been the MVP of the series for them. I mean, he he was, he might inco- yeah. yeah he, I mean, he was great in that entire playoffs. But I guess, like, just kind of going back through that entire playoff run. I mean, one, I mean, Derek Harper for me at least, like, very short stint in New York overall. But he was a guy that I just have like super fond memories of. I thought he was such a balanced player for them, just like his demeanor but also i mean he, he fit in because he was not a guy who would take shit from guys from anybody but he was also a lot more steady um emotionally yep. than somebody like starks and I, I mean you could see that in the way he played too uh and then you know also like just in general like going through that 94 run i don't know for you but one of my favorite memories of that entire thing is like i mean everybody remembers patrick you know with his arm raised and everything but for me the one i'll always remember is at the end of game seven against the bulls mason gets the ball and he's like dribbling it out and he's almost like pounding the ball so hard into the ground and as soon as the buzzer hits he just slams it to the ground and like it goes you know 100 feet in the air but and he's just like bouncing around with so much energy but like that those are kind of the things i remember from that playoff run but yeah i mean Derek harper for me was awesome and there i mean that entire run there's just so many moments and kind of great kind of i mean the game six in indiana where the knicks are up and like you look, think, wow, they're going to do it, they're going to bring it back to Game 7, and then they blow the lead entire... Like, that fourth quarter in Indiana is one of the most horrific periods of basketball you could ever watch a team go through and still win a game. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess just like going through that 94 run, like, what were your thoughts just talking to guys through that?
1: Yeah, no, Derek Harper was... was he was pretty good, you know, and Doc was pretty good, too. Um, you know, Doc, it, Doc told me when we talk for the book. I, I, I think I got him in Cleveland. Uh, this is still when he was coaching the Clippers and, um, doc told me that the day he got traded to the Knicks, he still remembers it pretty vividly. And he was working out in Los Angeles during the offseason with magic Johnson. And I think maybe James worthy. And, um, he told me that magic told him you might win out there in New York. So, you know, I'm happy for you, but Riley's going to kill your career. Like you're, you're, you're from a health standpoint, like your career is going to be over just because he doesn't leave anything left. You know, you, you run so hard. He works you so hard. That's what he requires for you to play for him. So I just want you to be prepared when you go out there, like have your body ready by the time you get out there. Um, so, you know, and then lo and behold, he tears the ACL. I'm not blaming, doc, uh, you know, Pat for that. But, you know, it, it was physically demanding to play for him. There weren't days off. The shoot arounds would go two two and two and a half, three hours. Um, you know, he would tell the guys to get taped up to go have a shoot-around because it was more like a full-scale practice for, you know, than really a lot of teams had. So, you know, there was that element of it, but, you know, when Derek Harper came in and replaced him, Derek Harper was a perfect fit because he could shoot a little bit. I think it was kind of under, he was underrated as a shooter. He could handle the ball just enough. Um, He was a really, really good defender and his toughness fit the team to a T. where, you know, the thing that everybody tells me I did a podcast the other day with The Ringer, and Raja Bell was on You know the podcast, and he was kind of just getting excited as I was talking about the book because I mentioned Harper so much. He's like, you know, Harper was a guy that I worked with and I would be in workouts with. Um, and he, he was just so strong with his hands at a time where the league allowed hand-checking that he would basically dare you to kind of try to back him down with the basketball. Um, and he said, okay, I'm just going to use my hand and put my hand right here on your back. Now try to move somewhere. Like, try to move closer, try to move to your side. Like, Harp basically had the guy in Mm lockup because he's so strong in his hands. He was really, like, maybe the most elite hand checker in the league to the point where when they made it illegal in the NBA to hand check anymore, they were going around with these videos and these VHS tapes the league was doing a points of emphasis um, meeting with the Knicks, and they, by the way, they the Knicks were their first stop on their tour around the league of like having their <laughs> officials talk to the teams. I wonder why that happened. But anyway, when they do that, and hand checking is really the big rule that's going to change in the league that year, and they're going to disallow it. Uh, the first couple minutes of the video were sh- highlighting and showcasing Derek Harper hand checking people, so he was kind of the foremost poster child of that movement. But, you know, at a time where it was legal, I mean, he was elite at it. And so you had him, you had Starks, who was a great defender for someone his size, being undersized, being closer to six, two than six, five. You had Oakley who, again, not very athletic, but he had good instinct defensively. And you had Ewing who, you know, I don't think he was anywhere near what people hoped or thought he would be defensively coming out of college, but was still a pretty good defender. Um, and you had Mason, obviously, when if and when he was playing or if he came off the bench or whatever. So you had a squad defensively. Again, they were really skilled on that end of the floor. I just think offensively they weren't. Derek Harper, um, you know, was effective too offensively. I mean, he was such a good shooter that Don Nelson, when he came in and decided that he wanted Anthony Mason to run point forward for the Knicks, part of the reason he did that was that he wanted to free up Derek Harper from ball handling responsibilities so that he could bring Harper off the ball and basically use him as a spot-up shooter. Because Harper, as you mentioned before, with his performance in the NBA Finals, at times he could kind of be the best thing they had going offensively. He wasn't really going to get to the basket much. But if he was left open, he was a pretty good knockdown shooter, certainly from mid-range, but even outside of the three-point line. And so that was something that Harper actually said. At first, he was like, you're going to take the ball out of my hands as a point guard. But then when he realized that, one, Mason could kind of handle it, and two, that it was going to get him more shots from the arc, uh, you know Derek Harper was all for it
0: um, yeah I, I always like uh, catching Mavericks games sometimes because he's got he's always on the broadcast um, yep. but he, he's he's awesome I I don't know he's like a he he kind of it's it's weird because he actually played such a central role in so much of that run 94 but he feels like a guy who kind of gets lost in the mix when you remember those teams probably because he's not the most standout personality um, but I mean yeah he was I mean again like that, that Pacers series is wild if you go back and just look at some of those games. And I mean, I think in game six, he's the one that ends up hitting like big free throws uh, to kind of ice the game down, down the stretch. Um, a game that the Knicks, you know, they were in control and then they just totally, you know, there's like, I think they had like 10 turnovers or something in the fourth quarter of that game. Um, and really need to like hit some, they blow the lead entirely. Uh, And then they kind of had to hit some clutch shots on the stretch to to get it back and get it back to game seven. Um, But I guess like, you know, uh, that game seven in New York is maybe one of the most. I mean, I mean, it might be the most memorable win since they won a championship, Um, you know, in terms of the Knicks anyway. Like, is, is that like when you talk to guys about that series, that run, is that a game that like stood out for them? Like, was that something that a lot of those guys still kind of cherish and hold on to? Oh, of course.
1: Of course. I mean, you know, Patrick basically scales the, the scores table and, you know, puts his arms up triumphantly. So there's that part of it. You're, you are talking about the win to beat the Pacers, right? Yeah, in yep, that game yep. seven. yeah. So it sends them to the finals. I mean, it was a massive win. It was, you know, the biggest win that Patrick was able to celebrate. I mean, also he had like a 24, 22, uh, seven assists, five block game. And you know, four steals, like some ridiculous stat line where the Knicks had more offensive rebounds than the Pacers had rebounds, period, in that game. And Patrick had the biggest one of all, obviously, to win the game on the Starks'
0: putback. Um, Do you think that was offensive interference?
1: I, I honestly have never <laughs> thought about that. I don't think it was. Is that something that people bring up?
0: I, I don't know. I, I, I've never seen people talk about it, but when I watch it and then I see like Larry Brown on the bench, I feel like he's asking for it to be... To be uh, interesting, offensive interference. Shit, I would
1: have asked for it too if I had been Larry Brown, just because it's like <laughs> you're watching your shot to go to the finals maybe slip away. Um, but no, I mean that was that was a great game for him personally, you know. And I think kind of his the closest thing he had to a moment in the sun is a Nick uh, up until he got his jersey retired. And it felt like finally the whole fan base was behind him. But there's that, um, you know. when you're talking about big moments, big plays. I think the maybe the biggest one after that since then, has been Larry Johnson's four-point play. Obviously, that's one where, you know, thank goodness the NBA has the footage, the aerial footage from that, where the whole crowd stands up at the same time. It's just an amazing moment. You know, people obviously brought up the Starks dunk, which put them up two games to nothing over the Bulls in 93. But, um, no, absolutely, that Patrick moment and that, that game and that win was just massive. Now, I mean, the irony, and I get into this in the book, is that... It's only minutes after that that <laughs> that you, you end up having a problem in the locker room, which is that uh, Pat Riley is you know debriefing his players and congratulating his players. None of them have won a final to that point or before that, which I think is relevant because they're you know this is new territory for them. They're excited to go to the finals, um, but in the locker room, Rolando Blackman then asks Pat Riley if the players can bring their wives. To Houston to start the series, and Pat Riley says no. And (laughs) after that, you know, Rolando Blackman, a respected veteran, a guy that has made four All Star games prior to joining the Knicks, and also a guy that would retire at season's end, you know, basically pushes back against Pat and says, Why not? Why can't we bring our wives? This is a huge achievement for us. Um, you know, our wives have fell down our households the whole season. It's been a wildly ridiculous, you know, ridiculously successful season. Um, and you know, these are our wives. They're not distractions. These are not call girls. These are our wives. Pat says no. And he says no second time more forcefully than the first. It's kind of jarring to the players how forcefully he said no to someone who's a, a, a very respected player, a very respected veteran who's making a pretty reasonable request from where they sit. So, you know, that happened and not only did that happen, but Pat, um, after that happens, makes a point to call Dave Chekets maybe a half hour, 45 minutes later, and Dave Chekets is on the in the process of driving home and gets a call from Pat Riley, basically laying out what had just happened in the locker room that Rolando asked if the wives could come. I said no, and I basically need you to have my back on this, Dave, that I don't think the wives should be there. They're a distraction. Dave Chekets fundamentally disagrees with him on that, um, but also has you know, always promised Pat that he's not going to push back against stuff that Pat says that he needs to implement with his players, um, you know, because Pat essentially has autonomy. I mean, this is a guy that said he didn't want the team psychologist to be able to work with the players anymore. Could you imagine that in today's NBA? But, that, like, that's something he said that the Knicks granted. You know, the Knicks granted that. You know, they said, okay, fine, the team psychologist won't work with the players anymore. So, like, Pat, you know, could basically do what he wanted within reason. Um, And so Dave Chekis says, okay, Uh It's not the decision I would make. I think the wives should go. It is a huge achievement, but you're the only one in the organization that's won anything before. So who am I to really tell you, no, they have to go. He said, I will say this to you, Pat, if we, if the series goes the distance and it goes six games, seven games, and we go back to Houston, the wives are coming then because I think the players are right, but I'm not going to undermine you in a moment where, you know, if you feel like it's important for the wives to not be there to start the series so that you can keep guys attention, then fine. Um, so, you know, it happens The you know, they don't bring the wives down there. But the bigger point, I think, is that people have wondered whether Riley was going to pull Starks, should Riley have pulled Starks, and not just that, but that Rolando Blackman would have been maybe the most sensible person to plug in there, in part because he killed the Rockets over the course of his career. If you look at his splits, his highest scoring average against any team was against the Rockets. His best field goal percentage was against the Rockets. He played in a division with the Rockets, so he knew them better you know, because he played with the Mavericks for all those years. he's the leading scorer in Mavericks franchise history to that point. Before Dirk came around, he's still second, to the best of my Mm -hmm. knowledge. Um, So, I mean, all these things are, you know, in the mind of a lot of people. Certainly the Rockets, Scott Brooks, a backup on that team, told me that that they were petrified that Pat was going to bring Rolando Blackman in, but he never does. And a lot of the players from that team, and Rolando is one of them, wonders about it. you know that maybe that was why pat didn't plug him in so it is crazy how quickly the high point and the euphoria of that patrick put back and that win over indiana kind of turned into a bummer and something that you know now you have to wonder a little bit at least did it have any factor on why pat didn't play rolando blackman in that series or in that game
0: yeah i mean the blackman his entire time in new york is kind of a weird thing because the guy was a still a great score when they acquired him i mean he was a he was 18 points per game the year before was basically right around 20 for the five six seven years before that um and he comes to new york and basically like doesn't really he's just not integrated into the to the rotation very much um he played 60 games his first year in new york in 92 93 and then 55 but only started one uh in 93 94 and he played 17 minutes a game in the regular season so like He's just an afterthought player, and it's just a a bizarre thing to acquire a player with that kind of skill set that can score like that and then just never really try to integrate him into what you're trying to achieve, um, given the deficiencies of that team.
1: Well, me and him talked for a while, and it's interesting because there are certain things that you can't always pick up the context from reading the stories. And, you know, going back and reading the stories, I certainly did that, you know, I— I can't even imagine how many tens of thousands of um, articles and clips that I looked at and read and, you know, even hired a researcher at one point to help me with that process. But I was looking over eight years worth of clips and even more than that, considering looking at some stuff from the 80s and some stuff after the 99 season, you know, they go past the confines of my book.
0: But Rolando and I
1: talked and I remember saying, that, you know, they brought you in to be a pretty big contributor for that 93 team. He was like, no, 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 no. Let's get it clear here. They brought me in to start. You know, and and like so he corrected me, and he's a very nice man. So it was not, I wasn't taken aback by it, but like he was very clear about that. He's like, you can look at my track record and tell that when they brought me in, it was to start. Um, what ended up happening, really, and he, he explained this at length, is that uh, he had back problems, and that he he had developed back problems. He had a basically a bulging disc in his back, and he said it, it felt like someone was plugging a sword directly into parts of his back. That was the sort of pain that he was playing through and that he was taking medication for it just to dull the pain. But he said he didn't like to do it because he couldn't feel anything, uh, Mm. essentially. And that he just like it made him so numb that he didn't want to take too much of it. But he had to to dull the pain enough to where it wasn't hurting him so he could at least get out there and run. But he was like a shell of himself from the standpoint of he needed surgery. But he also knew the way Pat operated and he basically thought to himself, if I have surgery and I'm on the table and I'm on the shelf, I'm going to become an afterthought in Pat's mind. So he played through it, but played really poorly in that first year in New York. And then in year two, but between years one and two, he also walked me through the medication he was taking and just the idea that like. You know, he was worried that it was going to have, like, long-term effects on him and his nerves and stuff like that. So he would just drink loads and loads and loads of Gatorade um, to where he constantly had to use the bathroom because he wanted the stuff to flush out of his system and didn't want to, you know, develop an addiction or anything like that to the the pills that he was kind of admittedly taking too much of just to dull the pain all the way but didn't want to become hooked to it. Anyway, so, I mean, there's a lot of backstory about that that, like, none of it makes the book because it's just too long and he wasn't really a big enough part of you know those years but um so basically when you look at like why he's not in the rotation he then blames a lot of what he was saying there on that it's just basically like I had that surgery I think it took me till like maybe the very beginning of camp or maybe even slightly a few weeks into camp or whatever for me to be able to get back up where I was up and running I still wasn't completely participating in everything by then but in Pat's mind if you're not there for the beginning of it you're not there like at all And it's not like he doesn't reintegrate people. The guys he has to start at the beginning of a process are the guys he's using. And so he kind of felt as if he was skipped in the rotation or that he was just all the way out of the rotation because of the fact that, you know, that was why he didn't want to get surgery in the first place the year before, is that Pat just kind of forgets about you. And I was just like blown away by that. But Pat did operate that way. And Pat was very in or out. You know, I've got the detail in the book about, you know, which I think is one of the weirdest details, but it just tells you how Pat operated. The idea that at one point Dave Checkets um, is on the phone with his wife and Pat is within earshot, you know, that him and Pat were having lunch and training camp in 91. And his wife is on the line um, asking Dave, you know, like I'm about to buy a Chevy Suburban for the family. What color should I get? What color do you want me to get? And Dave says, you know, I don't mind what, what choices are you picking between. She's like, well, I would probably pick the four is green. And Riley's standing there. He can hear enough of what his wife is saying. And Riley says, Dave, are you crazy? You, she can't get green. And he's like, why? And he's like, green is the Celtics, Dave. And <laughs> Chequets just, like, looks at him and he starts laughing. But then he realizes Riley's being serious. Um, and so he's like you're being serious he's like I'm dead serious so Chekis tells his wife we can't get green so then she's like okay I thought you were fine with that but what about red and Chekis says that works for me and Riley's even more agitated this time because he's like that's the bulls what the fuck basically and so Chekis then tells his wife like don't bring home anything other than blue but that's how Riley was wired is like you're all the way in down to the color of your car or you're all the way out, and you have to pick one. Like, it's he, he makes you choose sides. So the idea that he would have potentially held Blackman out of the lineup, even due to injury, even due to surgery, whatever, like, he kind of took that approach with his rotations. And with regards to, like, Blackman questioning him right before they start the finals, I guarantee you that could have played a role. I'm not saying that was why Rolando didn't play. Because again, he wasn't a big part of the rotation anyway. And so, we, you know, I included that in the book, not really because I think that's why Pat held him out. I don't necessarily think that I included that because the players think that he was capable of holding Rolando but out for that reason, because they know how he was wired and because they thought that Rolando still had something left to give. And Rolando has wondered about it for years. But between Doc, Derek Harper, Charles Oakley has a book coming out in a couple of weeks. And Charles Oakley says the same thing in his book is that that's why he was held out. So I don't even go that far. I say that it might have been a reason and that the players all think that. Oakley says that's why, you know, so like there were multiple players and then Rolando is standing there saying, I'm not sure if that's why, but Pat Riley, you know, hand wrote the guy letters for years after that, you know, that I think could be construed as apology letters basically that Rolando's never written back to. So I, I think there's something to it, but the players certainly realized that like it wasn't completely out of character for Pat to just cut somebody out completely because of a frustration or a question about someone's loyalty and where someone's loyalty stood.
0: Um. Yeah. It's it's funny all the ways you're talking about Pat Riley because boy, do I think that Tom Thibodeau is wired a very similar way. Um. Uh. And he does have connections to those teams, as we all know. Uh. But you know, moving on from Pat, who obviously is an amazing character in all of this, but like, Jeff Van Gundy, I think most Knicks fans but you regret a little, you regret more letting Pat go. But I do think that Jeff Van Gundy holds a place very near and dear to all Knicks fans heart. And I know that he holds Knicks fans and the Knicks in general uh, close to his heart. Um, You know, like, do you think, I mean, he's talked about it before, obviously that he, he regrets the way it ended in New York for him. Uh, I think he's called it the biggest regret of his career. Um, I mean, do you like talking to him? Like, do you get the sense from him that that team for him is just like special in a way? And this organization is special for him in a way that's just tough for him. Not not tough for him, but it's like it just stays with him.
1: Oh, hell yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> I'll put it this way. Jeff and I, I, I made a point to, to try to introduce myself in person to most of the main figures of the book. Um, Jeff was among them. Patrick was among them. Uh, even though, you know, I don't live in the same area. I live in Chicago. So I had to make an effort to try to see them or meet them somewhere on the road. Just, you know, if I knew that they'd be broadcasting a game somewhere. So I introduced myself to Jeff at the, I'm pretty sure at the 2019 finals um, in Oakland and, you know, Mark Jackson was with them, So I introduced myself to him too. Mike Breen obviously knows who I am. Um, so Jeff and I had talked before that, you know, but I wanted to make sure I introduced myself and Told him that I was working on it. Really looked forward to speaking to him if he was okay with that. He agreed to and uh, was gracious enough to agree to do that. Um, Then I called him about a year and a half later because, you know, you tell them you're working on it, but you don't interview those people right away. The way I approach my work, at least, is that you want to have something compelling to ask them so that they're not being asked the same questions that they always are asked about those years. um, And that you have more detailed stuff to ask them. So, I had, you know, I spent a year and a half interviewing you know, 150, 170, 180 other people before I worked my way up to Jeff. But when I got Jeff, it was during the pandemic, one. And two, he said, you know, Chris, I remember telling you that I would talk to you. I've talked to you in the past. You've always been fair. Um, But I don't know that I want to do this anymore. And I said, "Uh, can I ask why? Because obviously, you know, you're a big part of that era. I really want to talk to you. He said, well, I mean, you followed the stuff in the media the last few weeks. Oak, you know, I don't know what's happening with Oak and the stuff he's saying about Patrick. But everywhere I look, it's just so prevalent in the media. It's everywhere. It's being said everywhere. It's being spread everywhere. And he was like, for me personally, I just have no interest in singing mud. Those years were too special to me personally and too good to me personally. And that era was too special to all of us for me to mar it or for me to be part of something where guys are just going to be sniping each other. And I worry that that's what your book is going to do and what your book is going to be and that you're going to make hay off of something like what Oak is doing in the media right now. And in that moment, it came across to me how much he cares about that era, how much he loves those players. I mean, how grateful he feels to those players, Uh, you know, how grateful he feels towards those players for really giving him a career and for allowing him to coach those guys. Where Jeff was, I mean, keep in mind, Jeff was a 29-year-old assistant when Pat Riley got there. And he had already been there for a year or two with the Knicks. So he was extremely young. Extremely, extremely young. Um, and not just there, but like coaching Patrick Ewing as an assistant. Um, and so he was always so grateful for the fact that, you know, Patrick Ewing was Patrick Ewing. And he's letting a five-foot-nine guy that never played in the pros, who looks weird and dresses funny, coach him. <laughs>
0: Drives a and, again.
1: <laughs> Right, right. So he was, I mean, he was so grateful for that. And then, not just that, but, you know, Don Nelson is essentially, you know, a, a Hall of Fame coach that they replace him with Jeff Van Gundy, and Jeff Van Gundy comes in, and it makes all the players happy. So that, that speaks volumes, and so the idea, I mean, there are several things and se- several parallels with this, but, like, Charles Oakley, part of... What the big disagreement was in 99, really, is that Oakley um, had been traded, you know, in the months before that, before that lockout season started for Canby. Van Gundy was not particularly thrilled about it because he's really loyal to his guys. And the guys that really made it possible for him to have the career he had were Patrick, Oakley, and Starks. And particularly Patrick and Oakley, because those are kind of the leaders of the team. And all of a sudden, they're trading Oakley for Marcus Camby. And Oakley has all the leadership qualities you could ever want in a guy. So from Mangundi's perspective, that frustrates him. Um, and then as a result, partially as a result, I would say, he doesn't really play Marcus Camby very much, as much as he should be for someone that was supposed to be a key part of the rotation. And it puts him and Ernie Grunfeld at odds, because Grunfeld needs Camby to play to kind of justify the trade. And also to make the team better. And Jeff Van Gundy refuses to play him the minutes that Ernie Grunfeld wants. And so they start kind of sniping each other privately in the media or, you know, anonymously in the media. But, you know, I asked Jeff about that whole standoff and why he was so upset with Ernie. He was like, you know, I probably took some of that out on Marcus and it really wasn't Marcus's fault completely. It was probably more that I just felt such a deep loyalty to Oak. And so, I mean, that was what Jeff Van Gundy was about. And I was even hearing that come across in my interview request for him, where he's like, I don't want to be a part of your book if it's just going to be people slinging mud at each other. And it, it almost made me not sad, not you know, but it was just it was really compelling because it's like this guy really still cares about that era, those teams, all that stuff. Um, but either way, I uh, you know, it was it was fascinating to talk to him. He had great recollections of a lot of things. Everybody I talked to did for the most part. It was, you know, 200 plus people. The very lowest of those people, as far as their importance to that era, had stuff to contribute. I actually would say I got the vast majority of what I was using from a lot of those people because they remember it more vividly than people like Patrick Ewing, who had 15 years and 95 million handshakes to remember, versus someone that was with the team for three days in training camp and remembers every single thing that Patrick Ewing said or every single place that Anthony Mason took them after four AM, you know, or you know you know, Gary Waits is a very good example of that. Like Pat, you know, if you've ever seen Training Day and remembered Denzel taking Ethan Hawke's character around everywhere over the course of a twenty four hour period and all these death-defying sorts of instances he put him in, um, Anthony Mason did that with Gary Waits. And so, you know, those people that were only in training camp for a week, four days, they were incredibly valuable to this book because it takes you behind the scenes and shows you rather than tells you what these guys were like. And I, I could not be more appreciative for that.
0: A um, couple more questions. Uh, is there uh, any player or individual that when you're writing this book that your views changed on the most? Um, it was, again, it was probably Charles Smith.
1: Uh, you know, we talked about it a little bit, but I yeah. think it's Smith because I just think that uh, he had more going on than what people realize physically. And I don't think that he got, I I, I mean, you have people in the organization that basically say we could have made better use of him than we did. Um, And the guys didn't maybe have as much respect for him as they otherwise would have if he could have played through some stuff, but they were essentially kind of thinking that he was a softie Um, and maybe he was compared to them, but like, I don't think you need everybody to be exactly the same sort of player. That's normally viewed as a bad thing in today's NBA, and it probably was back then too. So he was, I mean, they could have used someone of his skill level, but they really didn't make the greatest use of him, in my opinion. And I think they did wear him down. Pat wore him down psychologically. So I think, again, since I didn't plan to write a chapter about him, I would say it was him. And I felt the need to by the time I was done.
0: That's pretty interesting. Um, how, many, how many Mason stories are there that you just didn't have time to put in the book?
1: <laughs> um... I mean, I'll put it this way: there were more than I had space for, and I'll put it this way as well. I compiled a list of, um, I compiled a list of the best anecdotes that like weren't in the book for the second to last version of the manuscript I turned in, and um, had like a, a half hour long meeting with my book editor to go through them to make sure that you know for him to make sure that I wasn't leaving out anything that was like gold. Um, several of those were Mason anecdotes that we like ended up putting back, putting in the book where he's like, Chris, I know this is your book, but there's certain stuff you cannot leave out. Like the detail that I didn't really, one of them was just such a ridiculous anecdote that like, I didn't, I didn't really have a way to wrangle it into the book. So I put it in the epilogue, which I think it did fit the epilogue pretty well, but essentially, you know, an anecdote where he, um, you know, it's become common now in an annual thing now where they have. The youth camps that the teams run, and they can charge a boatload of money for, you know, a couple hundred dollars each kid to come by for two days, and you know, do drills. But also that they bring in one of the players from the team to, you know, just kind of work with the kids a little bit. They don't have to do much. Um, the the first version of that that they ever had for the Knicks was in 1992, and Anthony Mason. You know, they never have like a Ewing level guy. It's always someone that's like a rotation guy, but not like your best player because it's a waste of their time. So. Mason was a good kind of go-between for that. He was local. He was a New Yorker. But also, at that time, a guy that was kind of signed on the cheap, uh, $1,500 was a lot to him. So they offered him 1500 to come by for a couple hours, and so he does that. Um, but then, they, you know, they get him a limo, and he rolls up in the limo. And, um, you know, the kids see him, and they're all thrilled and excited because they know who he is. They're excited to see a real NBA player in the flesh. But he doesn't get out of the limo. He refuses to get out of the limo for, like, 15, 20 minutes. Finally, Ed Tapscott comes by. He's the administrative director then, but later would become the GM. And he asked Mason why he wasn't getting out of the car. And Mason said, I'm not planning to. I don't plan to get out. And he's like, what the hell do you mean? Like, the kids are just sitting here waiting for you. They've already seen you. So at this point, like, it's a huge disappointment if you don't come in. What are you waiting on? And Mason was like, okay, I'll come in. But you need to make it two grand, not 1500 And I want the money today, and I want it in cash. Um, And so Tapscott's like, what the fuck? Um, And so he has to go send out, like, multiple staffers with multiple ATM cards of his (laughs) to even get that much money out, because I don't even think today you could get that much money out of an ATM. I mean, I don't know, but it's not two grand. It's certainly not two grand. So so he does send out people. He's like, all right, fine, Mace. Like, just whatever. But, you know, Mace, realizing he has the leverage, he smiles. He's like, all right, now I'll come in. Um, He goes in. And he plays a, a brief skirmish with the kids, but he ended up inadvertently elbowing a kid in the nose. And the kid's nose is gushing blood. The kid's nose is broken. Um, the kid is knocked out cold. The kid sits up. Finally, after a few minutes, Mason's hovering over him, trying to make sure he's okay. You know, the kid then smiles and asks Mace if he'll sign, like, his bloody t-shirt. So the, the Knicks avoid a lawsuit from that. But then... At the end of the day, um, Anthony Mason is walking out. He gets his cash, and he pats Ed Tapscott on the shoulder and says, "Thanks, man." And uh, I guess you should know that, like, the reason I wanted the extra cash—you know—I'm gonna send my mom shopping, and I'm gonna have her use the limo that y'all are giving me to go home. I'm just gonna have the limo take her around to go shopping with the extra five hundred. So it was kind of like a dick move to do all that <laughs> for a little bit of extra money, just so his mom could shop. But, you know, that story tells you a lot about how loyal he is to his mother. It tells you about how difficult he was as a person, perhaps how little he respected authority, at least at first, when he didn't know the person. So, you know, but that was also such a like a kind of a roundabout like story where it's like that doesn't fit any one thing at all. Um, So I put it at the very back of the book because I do think he becomes eventually like a very lovable character for people that know him. But that was Ed Tapscott's really like his first interaction with Mace. And he was like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, who does that? And, you know, had mutual people that he knew between he and Mason. Like, he was friendly with Mason's college coach. And Mason's college coach was like, yeah, don't worry. I'm going to call him and straighten him out. And he really chewed out Anthony for doing that. Um, And then Mace basically, like, was like a model citizen with Ed Tapscott after that. Because sometimes, like, it just kind (laughs) of took someone saying, like, I'm really disappointed in you, Mace. Like, he was a really sensitive guy that really wanted to be on people's good sides, but, like, also would push buttons if he felt like he could get by doing stuff like that. So, um, you know, there were plenty, but that was one of them for sure. There was stuff where I just couldn't get to some of the people that, you know, that he worked as a a bouncer for LL Cool J at parties and kind of like a bodyguard at LL Cool J's parties and stuff like that. And I never could get LL on the phone. So we'll see. I mean, hopefully some of the stuff... Hopefully, some of this stuff is you know comes out later. There's other material later that comes out that can kind of fortify some of the stories and build the legend even more. But he was a a fascinating. Like to me, he was by far the most interesting player of those years. I think Riley was the most interesting guy from those years, but Ry- Riley was the most interesting guy. Mason was the most interesting player. It wasn't close.
0: Um, I just a kind of a final wrap-up question, but I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on this because obviously you've covered the league over the last however many years uh is it like a decade now you've been covering the nba um maybe even longer right um
1: that's right yeah i started a decade ago
0: yeah yeah so i guess my question is doing this book and obviously from your time you know covering the nba day to day how much of like i i think in some ways is it fair to say the Knicks of the 90s were like kind of cowboys off the court? And I'm, like, I'm not saying like just partying, but like, you know, like this Mace anecdote, right? Like things like that. I mean, is it different now, the way like the league now? Because, I mean, obviously there's more coverage than there's ever been, but we don't know everything that happens in these organizations day to day. But, you're, I mean, you're closer to them and you've covered them day to day. Is it different now? Like is it more, is there less of that type of kind of, you know, um, I don't know. Recklessness is the wrong word, but it's like brash, I guess, in some ways. Is it, is it different? Do you kind of get the question I'm trying to ask here?
1: Oh, of course it's different. I mean, yeah. again, Riley's messaging is something that I don't think would fly today. I mean, or if it does, it's not going to be with like the mic'd up sessions that, you know, ESPN sets up before the games or anything like that, because you wouldn't have been able to do that with the shit Riley was saying back then. Um, again, I mentioned before that team psychologist Riley they didn't fire him, but they basically said, we don't need you to work with the players anymore, which was like half his job. So, um, you know, there was a lot of stuff that just Riley, you know, to the point where I don't know, even though it's healthy, really, like Riley wanted his only his voice to be the only one players heard. And now it's like you've got support staff, you've got your trainers, you've got your assistant coaches, you've got certainly a psychologist and like, you know, mental health personnel to help with stuff. Um you know, some of the players have relationships with people that are executives and other stuff like that. Some of the players have their own bodyguards that come on the road with them now. It's it's just a different time. And uh, the brashness from back then, I mean, I think that's part of what stands out so clearly. Because to some extent, the brashness and the physicality went hand in hand. Because it was Riley's messaging to make them brash on the court. But some of the brashness kind of extended off the court as far as what they were doing what they were saying. There's a story in the book about Anthony Mason sucker punching a man at the bar, Um, <laughs> you know, and, and Hubert Davis being with him when he does it. Um, You know, so th- there was a brashness. I mean, Mace had five civil lawsuits and arrests all in the same, was it within like a, was it a two year span or something like that? There was a lot going on. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a crazy team. It was a colorful team. It was a team that the NBA, when you talk about the Cowboy, aspect of it. Yeah, of course they were Cowboys like the NBA outlawed what they were doing. Um, You know, and we'll never see it again. So, I mean, the way I would describe them now is the way I described them in the book at one point is like prehistoric hard hat wearing dinosaurs um, because they, their style of play now basically is like museum type stuff because you're never going to see it again. Um, And the league wanted it that way because they, they did not want the physicality of the way they played and the way that other teams are starting to play because they saw the success the Knicks were having. Um, they didn't want that to spread. And it was spreading. I mean, the aside from the heat, when Riley got there, Donnie Walsh, the Pacers GM from those years, told me that he built his team to essentially be a carbon copy of the Knicks because he saw what the Knicks were able to get away with. Um, and, and just how much they confused the referees with how much physicality they had, where they were hacking constantly and hitting people constantly to the the point where it started to blend in and you couldn't call fouls all game. You had to kind of stop calling them. And even this, I mean, I did not get in my analytics bag in this book because it's not that sort of book. It's not probably <laughs> it's probably not fun to read like that. The, the most analytic minded you know, I got in this book was, again, Oakley having twice as many flagrants as anybody else one year and him having more than 15 teams in one season uh, by himself. Um, but I had data that showed that like the Knicks games were the longest in the league by far during those seasons. Uh you know, I had a media guide that showed that it was like the case for four or five years in a row. So they were making games longer. The referees realized they couldn't just call fouls all game long. So they would call a bunch at the beginning and then the games would, you know, essentially they'd be faster after that because the refs realized they couldn't keep calling them. Um and the Knicks played right into that where they knew that they weren't gonna get whistled for every play where they were hitting people, and that was the way they wanted it. So there was a brashness to that because Riley was telling them to do do it. The league probably knew what was happening. The league was fielding a lot of complaints from the coaches and other people around the league. Um, And that's just the way they played, and you had to make them stop. The league eventually did it, and now because of it, I don't think we'll ever see it again. The league did not want physicality to become more important than skill and athleticism, and uh, the Knicks used their physicality is a way to level the playing field, but the league did not want them to do that. So you stopped seeing it eventually, but yeah, it, it was certainly brash enough to where the league put a stop to it. So I think there absolutely was a brashness then that really doesn't exist and probably
0: couldn't exist now. Yeah, no, I definitely, definitely agree with that. Um, all right, Chris, I appreciate your time so much, uh, and, you know, just hanging out here for a while. I know you've been a busy man this week uh, talking next with, anybody and everybody uh, in the Knicks universe that exists. Um, I guess, is there anything that you would like to plug before we get out of here, uh, obviously, the book and or anything else that you're working on?
1: No, literally, trust me, people buy the book. I'm a happy camper. Um, <laughs> even if they don't, you know, I understand, um, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful to the people that have, um, even for the ones that haven't, the ones that have been supportive and, and, and patient about me working on it. it to me, uh, I mean, I say this will probably sound a tad dramatic, but this is, to this point, this has been the honor of my life, being able to write this and, and to write it for a group of people that are really passionate about it. So I certainly hope people take the time to read it. It was, you know, 10% of my life I took to write this thing. And, um, you know, the research that went into it, I'm, there were times where I was not comfortable with it and the way it read. And that's why I rewrote it three or four times. Uh, this is, you know, kind of my life's work. So I'm really proud of it and I'm really appreciative of anybody that gives it a chance as far as reading it or buying it. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, look, I got to say, I, I read it. Um, you were kind enough to send me an advanced copy. Uh, it's it's a great book. I would definitely recommend anybody to read it. Um, whether you grew up in that time, were alive for that time, or not, um, you know, maybe even more so uh, for the younger fans to, to learn about that team and understand why um, old old men like myself will always reference the greatness of the nineties Knicks and how that toughness was endearing. Um, it was great, Chris. I, I loved it. Um, I pretty sure I you, but you know, um, that was a team that's probably the most, I mean, that's like the, the team that is the foundation of all of my fandom for this team and maybe just like sports in general, what I want from teams I support. Um, and I thought you did a really great job of capturing it. So, um, you know, from the Knicks beat to uh, to writing uh, a book about the 90s Knicks, uh, you have done it all uh, as far as, um, look, I know, you, I know you're not a Knicks fan, but uh, we will always give you that honorary badge. And uh, you're welcome on a Knicks <laughs> podcast and uh, all Knicks podcasts anywhere at all times, I'm sure.
1: Well, I really appreciate you, you reading it Give me a chance to plug it and just talk about because obviously now this is my passion now with how much i put into it. But, um, I really appreciate the platform and uh, and keep up all your great work too as
0: well. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, real quick question before we get out of here. Uh, is Harbaugh staying? Uh,
1: I think he is just because at this point um, they've made some hires in Michigan that I don't think people would go there and take yeah. jobs there if the – Head coach, like I think they hired a D line coach from Notre Dame, if I remember correctly, like this past week. I don't think you're leaving a stable situation like Notre Dame to go to Michigan if Harbaugh's about to leave, unless you know who the replacement is and you're comfortable with that. But if there had been a replacement for Harbaugh already, that would have been out in the media already. So I don't think he's leaving, but I've I've been wrong before, so I don't want to count the chickens before they hatch. But I hope he's staying. I think he's staying.
0: Yeah, that was like me when. Ohio State got the ball back down 15 with under two minutes left. I was like, it it could still happen. Look, I've seen Mm -hmm. it all before. Don't tell me it's over. Um, Even
1: after after that (laughs) pass fell incomplete, man, and they were celebrating and, you know, Gus Johnson was celebrating Fort Michigan. I was like, nah, like, yeah. Even after the clock hit zeros, I'm like, are y'all sure it's over? Because it was (laughs) – Ohio State is so annoying, and I feel like they always find a way, so – just happy i'm happy i'm still i didn't even care really when they got waxed by georgia because i didn't i didn't go into that with expectations like i was probably a little too much of a chicken i really wanted them to get cincinnati i was hoping that they'd get the one seed they'd get cincinnati but then again it would have been pretty brutal to like get to a championship game and then just get waxed so (laughs) you know maybe it's for the best that they lost when they did but georgia was really good georgia won the title there's nothing to be ashamed of like they were supposed to win seven or eight games this year. They won 12. So yeah. I'm, I'm,
0: I'm a happy camper. Uh, it's, a, it they, a it's the season. first time I've seen them win a Big Ten title since I've become a fan. So I was very happy. Wow. Great yep. season. Yeah. Yep. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I hope you have a great weekend. And I hope everybody listening to this has a great weekend. Uh, and I know you will because the Knicks don't plan until once. So they cannot disappoint us. Uh, everybody have a great weekend.